Stanford University. So I think the way I would like to do this is I'm going to ask them each a question and introduce them, and then I'll turn it over to you guys to ask questions. And some of the questions that I think came up on the diligence list, as well as from the first half of the class, I think you know we've got some experts to choose from. And I'm going to start with uh, Jim Southern. Raise your hand, Jim. So Jim and I have known each other for 20 plus years. I mean, a very, very long time. Before you started shaving. <laughs> when you still had hair. <laughs> Jim was my. Jim was actually my second investor in my whole life uh, when I raised my first search fund. And since then, uh, I have invested in deals that Jim had, and Jim has invested in deals that I did. And he's been on my board, and I've been on his board. And that's all well and good, and we've made money together, and we've lost money together. <clears throat> but the best part is that somewhere along the way, the business relationship became unimportant, and it just became a friendship. So I'd like to introduce Jim as my friend. Uh, let me ask you the first question. How have you seen searchers handle this whole issue of identifying whether a person is a seller or not? So, so I've seen it handled well, and I've seen, seen it handled poorly. Um, I, think the, uh, I think it's important that you learn to get a deal flow going, but to, get, to learn how to get on and off a deal, because it's going to be the velocity with which you move from deal to deal that determines kind of the probability that you're going to get a business bot in your search. Some people will not even go out to visit someone unless they have uh, revenue and EBITDA, maybe in, in the form of a, uh, just a telephone conversation from the seller or possibly in the form of financial statements. And only then will he go out and visit them if, he's, if they have some general range of agreement on price. Uh, that works pretty well, but you need to have a huge deal flow, which it might work for you guys because you were seeing so many companies. If your deal flow is not so big, uh, you're more likely to handle it poorly, and you're going to go see people that really won't, don't want to show you their financial statements. They don't want to talk about price. They tell you about their friend who got seven times EBIT or something a couple of years ago. And... Uh, you can just end up spending a lot of time and money and drying up the rest of your pipeline in the process. Thanks. Uh, Rich Kelly, Rich started Search Fund Partners, what, how many years ago? Uh, seven. Seven years ago, and is a graduate here at the business school. And we've actually never met, although we've seen each other's names seven. on the bottom of documents many, many, many times. And I think the best thing that speaks towards uh, rich and search fund partners is the number of times people say, oh, have you talked to search fund partners? They seem to be on everybody's A-list. And it's easy to get on the investor A-list when you have no reputation. But after you've done a lot of deals and had to sort of conduct yourself both in good deals and bad deals and tough deals and easy deals, you start to build a reputation for who you really are. And Search Fund Partners has, has endured all that and stayed on everybody's A-list. So it's just a really a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Rich, can you maybe address the issue of to what extent searchers have been able to effectively use their <coughs> investors to gain credibility when somebody asks effectively, how do I know you can buy this company? Yes, um, it's always a bit of a shell game when you're a searcher because anybody worth their salt is going to look at 
uh, most freshly minted MBAs as being more air and less, you know, all hat and no cattle. And <laughs> the, uh, there's a whole bunch of techniques, but the first thing you got to remember is that the search fund model itself is really gathering momentum just on its own. And so many, many business brokers now are very familiar with it. Ten years ago, five years ago, that wasn't the case. And so you've kind of, you're, you're catching a wave there that's good. It's becoming well-known. People understand the kind of two-tiered search mechanism. Websites are so easy to put up. You've got the investors' backgrounds. I put a bio in for each one so that somebody can Google, Google onto them, then Google onto all the way through into the investor pool. And then lastly, have a go-to list of two or three investors that are used to the kind of requests where they can actually talk directly to the seller if the seller wants some verification that there are people behind this guy. Um, we've sent letters certifying that we are investors in this thing and that we're willing to look at every deal. We never stretch it to say we're definitely going to invest, but you can get credibility just with a letter or a phone call, and then oftentimes that actually evolves into a meeting because we want to get involved in the due diligence as quickly as possible if we can, and if we can meet the seller early on and help convince them that uh, we're real and the money behind the searcher is real, that's helpful. Rich, so when you get a call from a seller or you're in a meeting with a seller and you're not committed to the deal, how do, you, how do you answer that question if they ask you over the phone or directly, is search fund partners prepared to do this deal? We're pretty frank about it. We say, we've been working with this, this team for a year and a half. We've looked at seven deals with them. Um, we also work with 10 other searchers. We've invested in every deal that got past a certain stage in negotiations. You're not quite there yet, but we follow up with what we say, and that's who we are. Okay, great. Uh, Rafael Somoza, but nobody calls him that. He's, everybody calls him Pochito. Uh, we met uh, 10 years ago, probably? When, More, 96. 96, when he and a partner, uh, Jose Stella, bought a billboard company in Puerto Rico. And I think you heard Bill Egan say, or I quoted Bill Egan as saying that he only had two kinds of investments, those he had too much of and those he didn't have enough of. And as soon as I invested with uh, Pachito and his partner and I was on the board there, I knew right away I didn't have enough. And it certainly turned out to be the case. And since then, they've sold their business and they made a lot of money for people. And now you've been active investors both in search funds and direct investing. Uh, the question I had for you is that the issue of non-competes came up. And I was wondering if you had some thoughts about how you guys, if at all, had to handle non-compete agreements and non-disclosure agreements. Uh, actually, yes. The reason partly why I'm sitting here is because we said no to a non-compete clause that they wanted to put in one of our agreements. Uh, it was actually in the billboard industry. We were trying to buy. We ended up starting, actually, not buying. Uh, and we were looking at a company, and the owner said, well, that's fine. We want to include a non-compete in the confidentiality. Uh, we basically said, look, we were very open and frank. and said, look, we're looking at this industry. We're going to enter with or without you. Ideally, we will buy your company. But if we're not able to reach an agreement, we want to let you know that we might end up, end up buying someone else. Uh, and uh, thank God his lawyer was present there, and that got stricken out. Eventually, when we started the company, he tried suing us. Uh, and we basically referred to our old agreements, which said, you know, not going to be restricting that, and that was the end of it. So, I mean, that's 
that was something that uh, that it is very important. You never do, ideally. There are ways that I think. Who was it, Mike? You mentioned their their uh, non solicitation for employees. That's a way of getting trying to make the uh, seller feel a little bit more comfortable. In terms of the confidentiality agreements, one of the things we did, and I think this goes with building trust, with many of you brought up, uh, we always were the ones bringing that forth day one. After the first meeting, said, look, if you're interested in, in discussing this, obviously there will have to be exchange of information. What we propose so that you feel comfortable is we sign a confidentiality agreement, and that way you'll be protected and we'll be protected. Uh, and I think that immediately when we took the first step in saying that, that sort of lowered the defenses of the seller and made them feel a little bit more comfortable. Okay. Um, by the way, just to digress, Jim, you've invested in how many uh, deals, roughly? Uh, 45 search funds, probably 23 active uh, acquisitions. And your estimated IRR is? Don't know the IRR. It's been about 13x cash on cash. Okay, so it's a very good record. And Jim will have all these reasons why he's done so well, but the real reason is he's got a really good investment committee, including his <laughs> wife, Linda Southern. So I'd like to welcome Linda Southern. <laughs> that is the power behind the throne. That's right. <laughs> Robert, uh, you were you are generous with all the information about the logistics of your search and how you managed it and your time and so forth. I'm wondering if you would just go to a completely different place and maybe comment a little bit, excuse me, a little bit about what it was like personally and some of the personal challenges that you faced during the search. Absolutely. Um, the thing that we sort of realized about two months into the deal is we'd gone through this, you know, happy, happy stage and all of a sudden we're very, very sad. And, and it correlated with, you know, you find a deal, it's very exciting. And then for some reason or another, it doesn't make the cut. And, and every deal that you look at as a search funder is the deal until you actually close the deal. So every one of those was that much more important to us, and we were fully emotionally invested in it. We were fortunate that we had a team. So when it came to you know, being lonely, I mean, I spoke to Mark more than I spoke to my wife. And, and, we, and we happened to be in different cities. You know, we talked all the time because you need a lot of support. Um, cold calling is not easy. There's a lot of rejection you have to handle. It's like being in sales all over again for those who've been in sales. Um, it's, it's probably a lot more taxing than, than we anticipate. The good news is about two months into it, you figure it out and you adjust. And, and so, you know, going into a search, even if, even if I tell you about it, the first two months are going to be brutal on the, on the emotional side. It's just the way it is because it's a very, very solo exercise, even if you have a teammate. Rich? Ever. A nice antidote to that. I, I have not done a search. I've just been an investor. But we have an uh, annual gathering of all of our searchers and all of our company operators. And the first year we did it, we had uh, eight searchers and one guy that had bought a company. So the agenda was obviously slanted toward tactics for the search fund. The next year, seven people had found businesses, and there was still one guy searching. And so we kind of flip-flopped the agenda and started with a very small program for the talk about the search thing. We never got to the operational questions because the guys who had bought businesses and were facing daily challenges, all they wanted to talk about was the search fund. And it was like a group therapy exercise. We just kind of <laughs> stood back. And it was clearly one of the most emotional times of their life. And this was a group of people who had all done the same thing, and they just wanted to talk. 
That's it was amazing. I remember the. F I, I do remember the first day of my search, and it was something like I, I got the fund closed, and I, I, I really remember sort of sitting at my desk and kind of like moving the pencil over there, and then sharpening it again, and waiting for the phone <laughs> to ring. And we didn't have all the software. All right, so let me turn it over to um, you guys. And Jason, you, you had a, what's that? CRM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jason, you had a question which I, we, we were going to put off until this panel. Yeah. Well, actually, to be honest, I feel like Robert addressed it pretty well. But okay. I'll use this opportunity to ask another question. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, so actually, going back to uh, David's comment about risk failure, and in particular, what is the perception of search funders who have failed, both um, people who failed to find the deal over those two years, or people who did find the deal and failed afterwards, and I think we all acknowledge that the latter is much worse. And in particular, could you relate that perception of failure to those who fail starting their own businesses? Um, is it considered sort of better or worse to fail when you do sort of a traditional startup on your own versus failing in this scenario? Jim, would you take that? So, Lisa, do I have to repeat that question? Oh, you got it on. Um, so, I, I think to, to, to raise a search fund, spend two years searching, and fail to find a business and close the search fund down is a feather in your cap. It is not failure. Uh, if you choose your investors carefully, they knew the risk they were, go they were taking going in. And assuming they've done more than one search fund, they know that they get a step up on the search dollars and other deals to compensate them for taking the search risk. And I, do, I just can't see why. Well, I, I suppose someone might harbor ill feelings towards you, but it doesn't make any logical sense for them to have that. Furthermore, outside of the people that backed you, I think you'll find that they are amazed that you tried that and that they'll view that as a source of strength, and it'll be quite easy for you to go back and get into the uh, career path line that you might have pursued straight out of business school. The other part of your question was by the business. Well, then also then, okay, so what happens, what's the perception if you fail when you do buy a business? And also, how does that compare to failing it depends on how you fail after you buy. If, once you buy a business, I think it depends on how you fail. If you fail uh, just doing, making bad judgment calls after bad judgment calls, I think your your uh, reputation as an operator is going to be soiled. If you if you get out there in two or three years and go to your investor group and say, I think we bought a dog company or we we picked the wrong industry, and you choose to get out before your reputation is sealed in some other way, I think you're probably in better shape. To the correlation to doing a startup, I don't think there is any comparison between the risk of doing a startup and the risk of, of raising a search fund and finding and buying a business and succeeding. In the universe of companies that I have, where I've actually made an investment in the acquisition, 75% uh, of them have had positive outcomes, and only a quarter of them have had uh, have lost some or all of the investor money. And I just, you know, the, the startup business is just maybe it's one in 10 or one in 20 that succeed. Pachito, oh, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, I got lucky. Uh, the, uh, I think in terms of failing to find a company, many times the reason why people will fail was simply not because they didn't do their work or were incompetent, but because they had the discipline not to do a bad deal. And I think that, that shows a lot in the end. If you 
run through your fund, and the reason why you didn't do it was because you know you couldn't find a suitable target, which is a lot better than buying a company for the sake of buying a company. You know, I'd, I'd add uh, Jim and I have both done bad deals in our careers, and had to manage a company that was in trouble, and I think. Jim, uh, well, I know that Jim would agree with this, is that there are a few things in your business life that are more miserable than running a company that you shouldn't have bought in the first place because there are no easy exits in a bad, in a bad situation. And that was one of the points that both Bill and Will Thorndike made, which is it's not failure to not get a, to, to not get a deal done in your search fund. The failure is to rush to judgment on a company to get a deal done because you think that is the, that's the mark of success, and then you've really put yourself in a in a tough situation. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, and then Rich, Jim. Uh, no, I, I think I think uh, it, it's very difficult uh, to to recognize that you're buying a bad company in a bad industry, at least from the search funder standpoint, because you're so invested in the deal, and hopefully. Uh, you got, you're surrounded by wise, wise directors and investors who will say, wait a minute, Jim, this is a bad idea. Uh, unfortunately for me, I, it was my second company that was the bad deal, and I think my investor, I, I, we had a great outcome in the first one, and I think my investors imbued me with skills and characteristics and capabilities that I didn't have and concluded, all of us incorrectly, that I could I would succeed in what most of us thought was a crummy industry. And so, you know, uh, the, less, the only lesson I learned from that is just look at good industries with the wind at your back and good solid companies within those industries, and you should be okay. Rich? Yeah, one last little tidbit I would add about if you're running a business that, and it turns out to be a failure, um, a whole lot of how you end up walking away from that business in terms of your reputation and I think your momentum going forward is how you and your investors work together. Do not try to be a hero and sail through the wall. You know, work with your investors, make sure all of the big decisions are made in conjunction with your investors because they're part of the deal and these are small businesses. It's kind of an informal corporate structure and uh, they shouldn't want you out there flying solo. Questions? Victor. Questions actually, uh, Mr. Petey. I wonder if you could comment on what's the biggest surprise since you acquired your, your company, your business in 08, that you wish you know, maybe you would have done the deal, but once you walked in the door as an operator, what's been you know one of the biggest things that said you Biggest surprise since we acquired the company, um, managing human capital. So. We bought a business that was in a secondary market um, away from a large metroplex, and as a result of that, we inherited a lot of employees who were very, very loyal. Um, you can imagine that a lot of these businesses are going to be lifestyle-operated businesses, which means they work a certain way, but the goal isn't really aggressive growth. The goal is more sort of a social well-being type community feeling in infrastructure. And a lot of what we've been trying to do has been geared more towards growing the business, uh, which really puts a lot of strain on, on people's um, work experience in terms of what we expect from them. And, and that is proven to be, you know, it, in most M&A deals you get into this issue, but that's proven to be probably the biggest surprise in terms of um, what it takes 
to get people, so you get them on board, but to keep them on board, you know, um, it's a lot of effort. So, you know, all the hard work on the financial side, all the hard work on the customer side, you can't forget the hard work of managing your people and rewarding them. And it's probably one of the fewer, the, fewer, the fewest attended class in B-School is the one of managing people at work, which is ironic, but yeah, that's been the challenge. I think uh, there's a little bit of what uh, Dave said about being creative in your search. Uh, I think we got to the point where our, our deal took us, I think, roughly three years. Uh, I got to the point where we had looked. Ours was a geographic search in Puerto Rico. We had looked under almost every single rock for a company that we weren't sure in the end if it existed down there. Uh, and we had looked at the billboard industry, liked it, tried to buy, couldn't do it because of diligence reasons. Uh, but we had done a lot of diligence in the industry, talked to a lot of people. We liked, uh, I think Jim uh, pointed something out very, which we're strong believers, and it's been the case in our second time around, picking industries with high growth and winning your back. Uh, and we saw an undermanaged, underdeveloped, underpenetrated industry. And we began asking ourselves a, a simple question. If we were going we were gonna buy, I think it was gonna pay, $10 million for a company that had been in existence for three years. We looked at the industry we saw was growing very rapidly, and we looked at ourselves and say, well, why can't we just start something from scratch? Um, and it sort of evolved from there. We sort of made the list of things that we needed to ascertain in terms of validating the, uh, the execution and try to limit the startup risk to merely an executional risk. We knew there wasn't a business model risk. It was merely could we go out and execute and the case of billboards, could you get the sites, could you get the permits, could you get the sales? And we did proof of concept and you know we had a very disciplined approach to it and probably spent six months doing that and uh, up to the point where we realized that we, we felt comfortable that we could do it. But I think key there also was, uh, and I think some people mentioned it, investor communication. We, we had sold the investors on the industry and actually, it was funny in a way that several of them said, look, why not start if you can't buy? So uh, it was sort of we all collectively reached the same conclusion. And I think that's something that I've always told search funders, look, if, if you find an industry that you truly are, think it's a great industry and you can't buy in it, at least ask yourself the question, can you start something in it? I think there's been several examples of that uh, in the search fund community. Uh, it's not the traditional way, and I'm not advocating that you go that way, but, you know, it's something that at least you should have it in the back of your minds. And wouldn't it be true also, Pachito, that, that, that your startup model fit with the capital structure that is sort of implicit in a search fund in terms of the amount of money you need to raise and the way it's raised? So there would be some startups that the way the capital would flow would be contrary to a search fund. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was we raised $3 million. Uh, it was staged, uh, and I think where the deal fit the search fund model in the end, it wasn't. We weren't talking about a new technology, we weren't talking about a new business model. I mean, nobody questioned whether you could actually make money in billboards. The question was, could we execute our billboard uh, uh, business plan in Puerto Rico? Uh, and you know, so I, I think that's the reason why it fit the business model. It, it wasn't something as we want to do a new technology startup within the search fund model. It was a proven business model. 
Um, so. You know, Ogden Nash had that poem, I think that I shall never see a billboard lovely as a tree. Yeah. Indeed, unless the billboards fall, I'll never see a tree at all. <laughs> We're now doing cell towers, so it's very... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you buy a business and become a CEO, uh, what ideal relationships you want to build with the uh, second level management? How do you do it? What was the biggest mistake you've done and what was the... Uh, the most successful thing you've done? Well, for us, buying our business was all about the founder retiring. So, you know, building rapport with the management team was key. And, you know, something we continue to work on very aggressively. Um, in terms of mistakes you make, I think, you know, as I described earlier, how we worked, our pace of work is significantly um, faster than most people's. And, and it took us a while to slow down to their pace because, you know, you have to realize if you don't adapt to the business, you are not going to let the business sort of welcome you and grow with you. So it's more of you adapting to the business and then from that point shifting than really coming in and pulling the business because then you're going to be working alone the whole time. If, if Just, I, oh, I wanted to add to that. I think that most of us here are accustomed to working with very similarly minded people with very similar work ethics, very similar intellect, et cetera. And it's very different when you go to either a startup company in the industry that we chose or acquiring a company, where you have to realize that not everyone is like you. Mm -hmm. And not everyone can work at the pace that you do. Not everyone will answer an email at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> not everyone will put in the time that, that you normally put in. So, I mean, that, that for us was a big shock and something that gets uh, – some time to get adjusted to. And you have to be careful not to push so far, so fast that you'll make the system collapse. Rich? I think following on to that, you have to, you have to understand that within 18 months, you're probably going to have an entirely different team because you just weren't able to get those folks up to the level that you wanted to. Um, there may be one keeper in the sales department that that, that is got all the relationships, but it's inevitably taking it to the level you want to get it to is going to require almost a complete changeover. And you, your question is how to do it gracefully and honestly. Yeah. And I, and I guess, sorry for follow up, but given this, uh, I mean, how do you position yourself at the very beginning? Okay, day one, or I don't know, week one. So what message do you give these people? You tell them why you're excited about the company, you tell them you know, why you bought the business, and you tell them what your, your vision is for the company. And, and I think everybody realizes, at least you make sure everybody realizes that this is our vision today. And everything, so what we did is we showed up, and we had a communication plan for transitioning. And, you know, we spoke to, we had communication going to the customers. We had things that the seller would say to the customers, say to the employees, and then we, sh we flew that same the, same, the next day to meet and sort of, introduced ourselves. And, and ultimately, um, what we told everyone was, everything we've learned about the business, we're going to throw out the window, and we're going to meet with every single one of you to learn it all over again. And that's what we did. So we went on the 90-day plan where we pretty much re-explored the entire company and came out with a list of 130 or so critical initiatives that were 95% through a year later. So it took a while to get through them, but that's how we approached it. Why am I not surprised you had 130 critical <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, Aaron? How sticky have you all found the seller's expectations regarding price? In the case of engineering, 
So while we've all seen deals for four or five times revenue, if you know that's more than you can pay and probably be more than what the industry costs have gone, you've been able to talk someone down off those things and don't think about that. Jim, would you take that? So, so I, uh, I, my rule of thumb is don't waste time on the non-believers. If, if they've got unreasonable price expectations, your job is to have a, deal, a pipeline of deals to, and just go on to the next deal. And maybe you dance around with them, uh, you know, one song, but if, if it doesn't go someplace after that, just drop them nicely and you might call them back in six months or three months, but get your deal flow velocity up and get on to the next deal. And I'll say if, if their expectation is within two times where you think you want to be, you can handle that with structure. So that's not a problem. But if it's beyond that, then, then it is tougher to do. Right? That happened to us on one deal, which is proprietary. Um, they ended up buying it. The manager. So the founder, the founder was actually my neighbor's son, um, and we we spoke to him about his company, and the management team found out that he was interested in exiting, and they bought it from him. I say, Ryan, a question that I would always ask in an auction situation is if management is bidding. And if management is bidding, I think that you have to recognize that you may be just pricing the deal for somebody else and that they have a huge advantage over you. So, Matt or Mike? Uh, so from an investor standpoint, uh, thinking back on the people you decided to back and the people you decided to pass on, uh, what have been some of the key differentiators? You know, it's, it's really not easy. Uh, I, I, a lot of inv investors, search fund investors, agonize over meeting a prospective search funder and they call people and say what do you think about this guy and or gal and uh, and they end up doing one or two you know back in one or two searches a year I don't see how in a 45 minute meeting with you or anybody else or maybe even two 45 minute meetings over the course of two or three weeks that I can decide that you're not a winner and I, what I can do is I can pick up on it. Is there anything about you that makes me feel uncomfortable with your integrity? Uh, are there anything, any things about your terms that would indicate that you're pushing the envelope, like you're going to pay yourself $140,000 a year and you want convertible preferred and the final structure and you know, stuff like that? Uh, I, I can look for those things, but, but basically, who am I to say you're not going to be a great success? And I've always been pleasantly surprised, and so. What percent of the deals, Jim, that, that, that you've invested in, the, the percentage of the search funds that you've invested in that, have a, that come to you eventually for a deal where there's real capital, what percent of those deals do you think you do? Uh, I've, I think it's probably around 65% to 70%. Rich, you were smiling. At some point in that answer, yeah, there's a lot of to smile about in that, that question. First of all, answering that question on our part, we we've invested so far in every deal that has actually made it to our desk that was a real deal. We don't think that's entirely coincidental because we're pretty active in the search stage, and if 
somebody's going a place we don't we aren't comfortable when we signal that and that may have something to do with why a deal didn't get done but the the other thing I was just smiling about was thinking that when we first started doing this full time and started meeting a lot of searchers, we would agonize, like Jim was saying, about Jesus, this way, this guy. And pretty quickly, we got to the point where realizing that serendipity is just a huge factor in this, and we got comfortable with that. There is something to that, and it's why it's a valuable thing for investors to have that optionality. It's like I, I'm investing in you because you're going to work hard and I'm going to get to see what you produce in two years and then I can decide whether I'm going to put serious money into the deal. I'm going to know you, I'm going to know how you work. Um, and then the other thing that um, I, I, I laugh at is that there's a serial investor who's done a lot of these over 25 years and he's tried to be incredibly systematic about it, trying to predict whether or not somebody has what it takes to be successful or not. And he's, he has the searchers do a battery of tests. And they're these kind of Myers-Briggs type tests. He abandoned ship a couple of years ago. He's like, there's no correlation. There's not. There's not. <laughs> Other than trying to hit up Sandy. Yeah. Um, I didn't. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> Other than representing kind of the strength to acquire the company, what are some techniques searchers can use to leverage the experience and backgrounds of their investors, and kind of how should you consider that in putting together your investor base? Well, I'll, I'll take a first step of that one. We followed a fairly structured approach for that. Uh, given we, we thought about industries that we wanted to target, and we tried to have different people with different backgrounds in our, in, in our investor base. So we wanted to have um, operators. We wanted to have people with distribution expertise or manufacturing expertise. Uh, we wanted to have entrepreneurs. We wanted to have private equity guys, ideally so that each one would contribute something differently to the mix. So that's one. Two, in terms of leveraging them, I think the quarterly reports, at least for me as an investor now, and also thinking about when I did this, they were a way of letting people know what we were looking at in such a way that I could try to elicit a response in terms of, yes, I know that industry well, be careful with XYZ, or you should talk to my friend Peter in X company. Uh, and I think that's a, that, that for us was really helpful, and I think it's very helpful for people who do it if, you, if you're able to leverage your investor base in terms of deals that they've done, contacts that they have, um, introductions that they can provide, pitfalls, valuations, I mean, a number of different things that they can be really helpful with. I would, I would second what he said. The one thing we also did is we picked um, people who we knew could help us post-acquisition from a leadership standpoint. So one of our smaller investors is actually someone who was a CEO for 30 years, happened to mentor eight other CEOs in that time period. And, and, we, and he told us, you know, I can't do a million dollars, but I'd be interested in doing something small. And we told him what we really wanted from him was the ability to keep him engaged and, and to be able to tap into his, his knowledge on the operation side. And he's on our board today as a result of that. Um, so it's really up to you how you manage it. The other, the other thing you need to think about in assembling your investor base is just you need to try to hypothetically think about what their possible depth of pockets is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, these days, 
it's a different world than it was four or five years ago. Now everybody needs deep pockets because the capital markets are so stretched. You should actually consider your search fund group as your first line of investors, and then you should have a second line of investors that you are almost certain will participate. But you want to have people that can write bigger checks in your fund as long um, if there's a gap. Question for you. Given you just completed the search like about one year ago, was there in, in the five companies you found out, was there an industry theme or were they pretty much across industries when you did the NOIs process? Oh, we, we were very, very targeted in what we're looking for. Sticky B2B types, transactional, um, forgiving businesses, meaning, you know, I lose one client, I don't go belly up as a result of it. And so, Ironically, actually, every company we looked at had underlying a technology play where we could add value by capturing efficiencies based on what we could bootstrap ourselves. Um, but they were all B2B transactional type companies. Right, you got a question? Yeah, uh, Robert, so you just finished off your search about a year ago. Um, I was kind of wondering, you know, what happens to uh, especially everything you had in your presentation, see if it becomes work, and now you're moving on to an operating role. Had, we've had all these ideas about how to um, make that resilient over time. The reality is you're so busy that you don't get to it at all. I mean, you know, the data is in spreadsheets. I had to get to a different computer to get them all put together over the weekend. Um, it's there, but the other thing you have to keep in mind is people move, right? So probably 75% of those contacts are no longer valid because those were accumulated in 2007. They've all changed jobs now. Um, that's just the reality of it. Jesse? A little bit back to a previous question. So if you could find really wealthy investors, say, in Carlos Lim, say, Warren Fisher, You want both of them in the mix. We have both of them in the mix. It's important that you have both of them in the mix, otherwise you're going to have a tough time. Jim, what have you seen in investor profiles? Uh, I, I guess uh, in talking to the search funders that I'm, uh, search fund entrepreneurs in, in, that I'm invested in, there's kind of a common theme that they're surprised at how little help they get from their investors. And when you think about it, uh, uh, if, if uh, Search Fund A gets, calls me about a really great niche in the widget industry, widget service industry, uh, if I then relay that conversation to Search Fund B, I am dead meat. So I, so I, can't, I can't be a funnel of information, for starters. Uh, another, another type of investor is just really busy, and he can't, st he can't stop and take every phone call. And uh, also, investors, by and large, are not deal sources. Uh, just they don't, They're just not, they don't have a source of, of deals coming through their shop that they can give to you because they act on them themselves. But Jesse, I would add to that that uh, I think whether your investor was the richest man in the world or, you know, uh, a, a mortal with $50 million, uh, 
you want you're you're sort of starting with a situation where you want the search fund piece of their investment pie to probably be in the five to twenty percent category of their total investments. And then within that, maybe they have five to twenty search fund investments. So I would say that, that your problem is not that you're going to reach their upper limit with your search fund because if they're investing twenty or thirty thousand dollars in the search fund, they're they're hoping that you bring a deal that allows them to put three hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollars of capital to work. So that search fund investment is 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 almost insignificant to any of the search fund investors. They're just thinking about the option. And it's not an irrational thing for them to completely ignore you for 24 months until you bring a deal because they don't have anything at work yet. I don't know, but was that? Yeah, you, you summed up exactly what I was going to say. We, we really pride ourselves on our interactivity with the searchers during the search phase. But Which is rare compared to the uh, individual yeah, investors, right? Truth be told, we just don't get it the same way you do because it's a digital world for you. You're a zero-one option, and we've got many, many options. And I might encourage you to go do something that's got a little wild hair up it because, to me, that adds to my portfolio. To you, it puts you out on the edge living dangerously. Uh, and so it's, it's a fine line. Yeah, one last question. Pachita, why don't you take that since you're on the investor side now? Uh, I think it varies by by uh, who you talk to, but uh, I think the part of the key here, if you're a new search funder, I think you need to start looking outside of the traditional. Uh, sources of a capital just because there's so many of them that are several or many people already tapped out or have a lot of active searches going on right now so I think it'd be wise to try to broaden the scope and, and try to grow the investor base that looks at uh, these types of deals uh, but we're seeing a lot of increased interest from a lot of people who want to do this uh, on our end we've We've tapered down a little bit this year simply because we're also doing a startup and we're self-funding that and we have a lot of active searches. But, you know, we know of, of other people that are still very active and, and are, are, you know, uh, doing as much as before. I mean, I think there's a mix of, I don't know if you agree with that, but. The, the, the pie of known search fund investors, investors has probably expanded by a factor of, of 10 in the last two years. There used to be 20 kind of known uh, quantities in search fund investing, and there's now uh, somebody harvested the websites of all the search funds uh, about nine months ago, and I think the number then was one, 160, but it's probably 200 or 250 by now. There are just plenty of investors out there, and as long as you choose them well, I think you can just ignore the shortage of capital that you're hearing about. So, uh, Pachito traveled from San Juan, Puerto Rico. And Robert's here from Dallas, and Jim is a uh, legal resident of New Hampshire because there's no state income tax there, so he traveled from New Hampshire. And Rich traveled, <laughs> Rich traveled down the street. That's a lot of effort that the four people here made to be with you today, so please thank them. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.